I'd like to uh, start by uh, introducing my daughter and her husband, Cassie and Chris Underwood. Go ahead and stand up. We've been talking about you all week. <clears throat> and Chris's family, thanks for coming. And I have a feeling I have some grandkids running around somewhere downstairs. You can tell them they're easy to spot because they're the cutest kids in Summit County. <laughs> you know, when you get up here to preach, um, you come with a plan, and you think you know what you're going to do. And then the Lord always has another plan. I've gotten used to it over the years. Let me tell you the two things that changed my plan a little bit. <clears throat> One is on the first service, Mark surprised me by singing Great Is Thy Faithfulness. And um, that's a song that's hard for me to sing without crying because uh, you've heard my story by now and read about it and talked to me and asked questions. And uh, two days before my first wife went to be with the Lord, she asked if we would sing that song at her memorial service because it was her favorite song, the story out of Lamentations, when the world was very hurting and dark. And, and in the middle of that, God says, great is his faithfulness. And so I wasn't expecting that. And uh, so I was caught for a moment. And, um, you know, God is always faithful, isn't he? Everywhere. It doesn't matter if we're faithful or not. It doesn't matter if we even know he exists or not. He's always faithful. Well, then uh, the second one, a little bit more lighthearted than that. Um, <clears throat> I decided when I came here this week, I was going to put a lot of energy into memorizing as many of the children and the youth names as I could. Because I've learned that if I learn the names of the parents but not the children, I have an issue. If I learn the names of the children, I mean, if I learn the names of the parents but not the children, I have an issue. If I learn the names of the children, the parents will forgive me, right? <laughs> so I had two little girls come up to me, and I remember one of the names but not the other this morning. So I said, hello, so-and-so. And I looked at the other little girl, and I said, I'm sorry, I can't remember your name. The first girl goes, you should know that. Her name is so-and-so. And I said, I won't ever forget it. <laughs> oh, to be rebuked by youth. It's a wonderful thing. You know, the faithfulness of God is actually something that um, I want to talk about today. When you, I think all of you, for the most part, are familiar with the Genesis story, um, the Garden of Eden, the flood, all of that sort of, all those details and basic stories. But what you find when you go back and you start really reflecting on it and you think about it is uh, starting with the fall, that movement into total, what we call total depravity, which means, I think, total destruction. There's not a single part of me that's not influenced by that. The world became very dark. John argues in the Gospel of John that uh, complete darkness had overtaken the landscape, the creation. No light anywhere. Not even a whisper. Not even a casual pen light. And if the Lord decided not to do anything about that, the world would have stayed dark. And that's the story of the early chapters in Genesis. As um, soon as Adam and Eve are out of the garden, you see this descent into hell on earth. Every imaginable means of hurting people begins to appear. But God, in His graciousness slowly begins to shed just a little bit of light, a little tiny bit of light. You see it, glimpses of it. You see it when he talks to Noah, for instance. You see it when he talks to Abraham. And by the way, back in the Old Testament, is very different than it was today. God didn't speak all the time. We have the Holy Spirit living within us, and so we experience the presence of, of the Lord regularly. That wasn't the case. I read through the Bible every year, so I've been reading about the life of Solomon. And uh, when Solomon first took office, uh, the Lord talked to him, spoke to him. 
And then it says the Lord spoke to him a second time. It was 20 years later. Isaac, when he prayed on behalf of his wife, Rebecca, it says that he prayed and the Lord answered his prayer. But if you look carefully at the dates, it was 20 years later. He prayed when he was 20, and uh, 20 years later, God gave him a son. And so um, it's not a, God just didn't speak all the time. There are long periods of silence in the Old Testament. They did not have the benefit of having this, God's living word, and they didn't have the benefit of having the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so that's, in my mind, truly living by faith. But as God begins to speak a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time in culture, you see this very slow light appearing. It's, um, it's the coming of the kingdom. It's God wanting to begin the process of recapturing what he lost at the fall. He's not in a hurry. He's pretty patient. And then about 1300 B.C., uh, roughly 3,500 years ago, something unheard of happened. God took on all the major gods of Egypt face to face and defeated all of them. Destroyed the whole Egyptian pantheon. The ten plagues were against the ten major gods of Egypt. Now, prior to that, how would you know if your God was more powerful than the God next door? The only way you could know was to go to battle. Okay? And whoever, was the, whoever won the battle, obviously our God is stronger than your God. And so the people that lost the battle, they would be subjugated. They would become, um, a lot of nasty things would happen to them. We'll talk about that later, some other Sunday. But they, um, they would have to shift gods um, to the more powerful God. Well, with the story of Israel in Egypt at what we call the Exodus, there was no war. There was no army. The Israelites were slaves. They had no idea what an army was or how to be one. They didn't know how to fight. They had to learn all that. And that's the story of the uh, part of the early part of the Old Testament is how do we do that? And so God, um, because of his great love for them and his promise to Abraham, stepped in on their behalf, unbeknownst to them, and took on the ten uh, major gods of Egypt, and in so doing, took on the entire pantheon of gods and destroyed them. It's his way of saying, there's only one true living God, that's me. Your gods are nothing. They mean nothing to me. And the Israelites had the privilege of experiencing that raw power and watching that um, and feeling that and not knowing what that meant because God had not spoken for 400 years. And all of a sudden, he appears on the scene through Moses. They had heard the stories of God through their ancestors, but they were also very Egyptian in their theology. They worshipped idols. The very first thing they did, uh, somebody asked me after the first service, the very first thing they did after, after Moses went back up to the mountain was to, to build this golden colt bull. That's all they knew to do. And so that was who they were. So they knew very little about the world around them because the Bible had not been written yet and God had not spoken. So here's what they knew. And this is what the first chapters, the first two chapters of Genesis are designed to do. Here's what they thought they knew. This whole thing we call the world, earth, creation, here's how it came about. There are these two gods, and by the way, this is a common theme among all the ancient nations. Two male gods got into a fight. I guess competition is part of being male. I think it is. Got into this fight. 
right? And somehow out of this fight, voila, this earth appeared. I've yet to figure out how that happened, but that's what they thought, okay? And so God starts with a very simple message, and here's what he says. I created this for you. This is your home. That's how important you are. In fact, all of creation, as far as you can see, is there to bless you, for you to enjoy. That's how important you are. What a stark contrast between Egyptian theology and when the true God speaks. But it doesn't stop there. Through this first couple of chapters, we learn all kinds of things. We learn, for instance, that the Egyptian gods, um, they would say, work hard. You're not working hard enough. And our God said, no, no, you work hard enough. You need to take a break every seven days. We'll call that the Sabbath. Rest. I'll take care of your animals. I'll take care of your families. That's how important you are. Take a break. Their God said, you're not good enough. And our God said, well, you did make a mistake, but I'll take care of you. You will become my special people, my prized possession. Their God said, service. Work hard. Be afraid of us. Our God said, don't be afraid. In fact, ultimately, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. We don't have a God who wants us to serve. We have a God who wants us to love. Service is a manner of expression of love. And so, just in these first two chapters, I can only imagine what it would have been like for them to read these stories and hear this message and think, the world as I knew it is completely different. This is the kingdom coming into the world as God erupts into our life. And the light gets a little bit brighter and a little bit brighter and a little bit brighter. You with me so far? Okay. What a surprise, then, that the very first thing they learn is that God tried to protect them from the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't that part of our world? Do we exercise that knowledge all the time? And they read in the account, the prehistoric account before their time, that's the only thing that God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat of that one. Everything else is yours. Enjoy it, but not the one. Now, you probably have gotten to know me, some of you, and you know I'm rebellious at heart. Whenever I see a command, I automatically question it. Why is it there? I did it with my mom, dad, growing up. They're with the Lord, so you can't check me on that. But you could ask my brothers and sisters. I was definitely the most rebellious of the six kids. And uh, they would give me a command, and I'd find another way to do it. And so I want to know why. Why would God tell us, uh, I don't want you to know, have the knowledge of good and evil? Let me tell you my thinking. I think it's because uh, I'm not created for that. It's not the way God made me. Because to truly understand the difference between good and evil, I need omniscience. I, need, I don't know your motives. I don't know your circumstances. And so all the way through from end to end in Scripture, uh, you see this language, ascertain the facts on the basis of two or three witnesses. Things are meant to be dealt with in community because none of us are God. If we had perfect knowledge, we would be God. What that means is what I think about things around me is often wrong. The Israelites, I think they would have sworn up and down a lot of things that Genesis overturned instantly in their thinking. How would we know if God never spoke? So you get the, the, you get the point. We're not created for this knowledge of good and evil. 
Sadly, because of the fall, we now have to live with it. And so the Bible gives us lots of ways to help us make sense of it and to exercise that knowledge fairly. Jesus, for instance, says in Matthew 7, don't judge. It's a very strong command. Do not judge. But then he says, however, if you have to, sometimes we do, be willing to submit yourself to the same standard by which you judge another person. So all you have to do is when you're getting ready to judge somebody, you can say, if I were to reverse the roles, would I appreciate this approach? That, that's a start. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 6 uh, that don't, don't do it, but if you have to confront a brother or sister, do it gently and humbly, otherwise you'll fall into the same trap. James says, ask for wisdom from God. All of the authors talk about um, ascertaining the facts on two or three witnesses. In other words, we're not very trustworthy. That's what that means. We see the world um, through broken lenses. All right. What that translates into is we don't see things very accurately, including ourselves. Picture this with me. <clears throat> Something we just had this week. You wake up and you see this, it's been snowing all night and you look out your window and you've got this fresh snowfall. It's virgin snow. Nobody's walked on it. You can see across the field and into the mountains and, and you walk outdoors and the sun's rising. And as the sun kind of peeks its head up, you see the icicles on the trees and the sunlight refracting off the snow into the colors of the rainbow. It's spectacular, isn't it? You know what I'm talking about? You've all seen that many times up here. We're not in Kansas. And then all of a sudden, you hear this retching sound. And you look down, and at your feet is a homeless person. The beard's all matted. Eyes are rolled back in their head. Um, probably haven't bathed in months. Where do you see God the clearest? According to Genesis 1, only we are made in the image of God, not creation. Only we are. In fact, all the way through this grand book, they get attacked over and over and over again by God, challenged because they give up their love for the Creator in exchange for the love for creation. This is where you see God the clearest right here. Now, what does that mean? Practically, what that means is in your most broken state, you image God better than the most beautiful aspect of creation. That's what that means. When you're at your worst, you image God more clearly than all of creation. Romans 1, God challenges them because they give up. Even though they have the knowledge of the Creator, they refuse to acknowledge Him as God, and they worship the creation instead. It's a message all the way through. This is meant to be hopeful to you in your very worst state. When you're sinning at your deepest, you still image God better than all of creation. Is that a marvelous thing? That's a spectacular thing in Scripture. Makes you wonder what would happen if we saw the world that way. Right? If we saw the rest of the world that way. <clears throat> I think we might love people a little differently. We might think of them a little differently. Because there's a lot of people out there that I have a hard time loving. <laughs> at certain times of the week. But that's the reality of it. Our lives are significant. God created us for a purpose. We have a role to play. 
God wants to use us. The word image, the very heart of that word in the ancient literature, the ancient world was very simple. You had a king who was finite and lived in one place and he would go around the out parts, the outer parts of the, the empire, the realm, and he would set these little icons to remind the people way out there that you serve this king. That's the word for us. We are, in, we are the icons for God. We represent God to a world desperately in need of love. That's what it means. And in our very worst state, we still do that. Sometimes it's not very pretty, but it does happen. That's how important we are. Okay, but the reality is, I don't feel very good about that. I don't feel very good about me uh, because I already know who I am. I know my own sinfulness. I know my brokenness better than all of you do. Um, the second person who knows the most about it is my wife. Thirdly are my children, <laughs> and it moves out from there. And so what is God doing? How does that work? And I would argue that our lives are actually like a mirror. Calvin argued that. James, in the book of James, argued this. We're actually like a mirror. And what happens is, as we come to know the Lord, we take this amazing step forward. This mirror starts to get polished. A mirror is designed to reflect the glory of the Lord. The Old Testament says, only God is holy. Right? So we reflect his holiness in the form of glory. We're like a mirror. So he shines, we shine because it's being reflected out. And that's what happens. And so throughout life, we are being transformed into the image of Christ. Technical language in the Bible, it's very difficult for us in our culture to grasp that. They grasped it in the first century world because that was language they used. Image, image was a common concept, but it isn't for us. So we are being transformed into the image of Christ. Let me tell you what that means. Christ is the perfect human. That means that throughout your life, you're learning what it means to become a true human. That's what it means. For instance, if for those of you that have learned how to be generous, then you know the joy that comes from generosity, don't you? Whether it's money, time, whatever it is, you know that there's this deep satisfaction that occurs when you invest into the life of someone else. Am I right? That's what you're created for, because that's the way God is. And so over time, as we learn to be generous, then we feel that deeper sense of satisfaction. We're meant to love people. As we learn to love people, whether they're lovable or not, we begin to experience internally what we were created to experience. That's what it means. I was in uh, Nepal about six weeks ago, and um, we had, I was at the church, I was preaching at the Nepalese church there in Kathmandu, one of them, and uh, they took an offering. And uh, they didn't have a lot of money to give, but they had a lot of poor people. It was one of the most amazing things in the world. It was so visceral, so real. They carried these big metal containers, and they had three men holding the metal containers. Nothing against women, they needed men. And they went down, and people had brought 10% of their rice stores and dumped it in. So as they're carrying these buckets down, they filled these rice stores with rice. So by the time they got to the front of the church, the church is honestly about the size of this church, maybe 200, 250 people, somewhere in there. When they got down to the front, the rice bins were packed, overflowing, and they sat one on top of the other. So they're sitting about this high, these bins of rice, and the purpose was to feed um, the homeless among them and the, the girls and boys that they had purchased out of the sex traffic market. That's how they took care of them. It gave me a whole new sense of what my offering is all about. 
just have to be honest with you. You know, it's so easy to put a check in there or something. There's, and that's good. That's not a bad thing. But it gave me a whole new sense of, wow, this is real. This is tangible. That's all they had to give, so they gave rise. A very, a very visual expression of what it means to be generous, of which I suspect a lot of you are. To be transformed into the image of Christ, that's what that means. That we are being, slowly, we are learning how to be what we are meant to be all along. What we are created to be, truly human. To learn how to love people, to learn how to be generous, to learn how to forgive, to learn how to carry one another's burdens. I mean, Paul used the phrase one another 57 times. It must be important. <laughs> Whatever else you say about church, we're meant to do it together. Right? Okay. So we have a responsibility to reflect the image of God. The first thing I wanted to do, if you forget nothing else, was just to encourage you. At your very most broken time, you image God better than anything in creation. And I hope that that just brings you a sense of gratitude at who the Lord is. That's how good you are. That's how good. And by the way, that's fairly unique to our religion. In almost every other religion, through reincarnation, enlightenment, emptying yourself, you become something else. In Christianity, we're unique. I made the image of God, and that's a good thing. It's one of the two times he said in Genesis, that is very good. I'm me. I'm Jim Howard, and I like being me. I like what I'm becoming, but I like being me. And I've gotten to know many of you this week, and I like you being you. I don't have to go through reincarnation to become something else. I want to be me for all of eternity. That's how important you are. That's at the heart of Christianity and this message in the Bible here. Okay? All right. When you move to the New Testament, you find some interesting things happening. You see that, uh, that um, the authors of the New Testament begin to use language which had sprung up in the Old Testament. In fact, you can think of the Old Testament this way. The Old Testament is almost like a picture book, if you will, of, uh, of, of God giving us a picture of tangible reality. You can touch the stones in the temple. You can, uh, you can hear the animals. You can smell them when you sacrifice them. You can feel the warm blood running down, right? It's, it's tangible reality, which then the New Testament authors use to explain true spiritual reality. Anybody in here seen the movie The Matrix? Pretty old by now. Let me see if you've seen it. Ooh, even some of the older people. Sweet. Okay, if you uh, go back and read the story of the two brothers that wrote it, somebody asked, they weren't believers, somebody asked them, where did you get this incredible story? And they said, right out of the Bible. It's the best science fiction book ever written. We live in two worlds at the same time. Here I am with you, but somehow, according to Ephesians, I'm right now seated at the right hand of Christ. I'm with you, but somehow if I could take these off and put spiritual lens on, I don't know what I would see here. Angels, demons, who knows what I would see. But it'd be a spectacularly different world on top of this one. And that was the story of the Matrix. And so how would God create true spiritual, how would he communicate true spiritual reality when that's outside of our uh, uh, three dimensions and our five senses? So what he did was he set up this Old Testament to help us with all these tangible pictures to make sense of true spiritual reality. I'm going to look at two of those, but I'm going to talk about a different one first. Temple. Over here in 1 Corinthians, we're told that we, the church, are the spiritual temple. Right? Temple of the Holy Spirit. How do we define that? Do we go look at a Hindu temple, Buddhist temple? Hope not. I haven't seen those. No. We slip back into the Old Testament and we look at the Jewish temple. And what do we find about the Jewish temple? This is where the law of God was explained. I.e., this is where you learned about the truth and how God views our world. 
when the world looks at us, do they see us discussing truth and the way it helps us understand our world out here? This is where the poor could come and have their needs met, in the temple treasury. When the world looks at us, the spiritual temple, do they see the poor being cared for? This is where um, people that had conflict and disagreement could come and talk to a, a priest at the temple and get it resolved. They didn't use lawsuits. In fact, Paul criticized the Greek church for suing one another. Trust the priest is what they said, what God said. All right, when the church comes to us, do they see us dealing with inequities in a fair way within this group? This is where, it's one of my favorites, this is where the partying, I mean, this is where the festivals occurred, all right? In fact, they weren't allowed to celebrate the festivals outside the temple, Deuteronomy 12. Three times a year, everybody in Israel had to gather, the men specifically, but they would bring their families. They had to gather at the temple three times a year from wherever they were scattered around the world. They had to come celebrate the festivals, and God promised, while you're gone, I'll take care of your homestead, your animals, your farm, everything. I'll take care of it. You come and party. So the Festival of Tabernacles, eight days, this festival went on. And the rabbis tell us the music and the dancing didn't stop. 24 hours a day for eight days. All right, when the world looks at us, do they see us dancing and partying? I love to have fun. If you read nothing else on the website that I wrote, just read my uh, values, personal values statement. I talk in there, one of my values is I love to have fun. And I think we as a church should laugh and dance. The world should look at us and say, I want to belong to that, that group. Okay, so you get the sense of what I'm saying? That's an example. Here's the temple, and that tangible reality helps us understand true spiritual reality, who we are in Christ. So the Old Testament serves a very vital function because it's connected. It helps us make that transition through Christ and understand who we are. With that in mind, I want to look at a couple of passages. One is Romans 12. So if you have your uh, smartphone or your iPad or whatever you have, pull it out. If you uh, aren't technologically advanced, there's probably Bibles in the pew somewhere. Romans 12. Let's look at two more of the images about who we are. These are all very famous passages to you. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... Okay, pause. Romans 12 is the first command in Romans. The first command to take action. This is the first command. So 11 chapters, Paul is explaining reality. Then he says, now that we understand reality, here's what we do about it. He just got done explaining, Romans 9, 10, and 11, God's mercy and not turning his back on the Jews even though they rejected him. He's not turned his back on them. So Paul says, in light of this mercy, which we have all experienced, I believe, present your bodies or offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, you notice that it says be transformed. That's passive voice. Allow yourself to be transformed. How? By the renewing of the mind. This is where it starts. By the way, this is why I've devoted my life to teaching and preaching and studying God's word. Because it's the key to help you transform. This is why we spend time preaching up here, to help you transform. To shape a community. This is why Bill... Uh, Spears across the way over there is leading a Bible study to help you transform. This is why we have small groups. Not that they're all organized around Bible study, but when we talk about truth in our relationships, that's a transforming experience. Allow yourselves to be transformed by it. So I just gave you a truth this morning, didn't I? That uh, in your most vile moment, you are more spectacular than all of creation. So when you wake up in the morning, 
and you've uh, perhaps yelled at your spouse, been short with them, maybe you've been short with your kids, who knows, maybe you're angry at your boss, it's okay to stop and say, all right, even now, I image God more clearly than the creation. Take that truth and start chewing on it over the weeks to come, and think about what it does to you. So here we have it. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what it means to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Interestingly enough, every command after this for the rest of the book has to do with someone else. Okay? Now, this is where the Old Testament helps us. We go back to the Old Testament and we look at the concept of a sacrifice. An animal is sacrificed by slitting its throat. It's sacrificed to God on behalf of whom? Itself or another person? Another person, right? If I bring the sacrifice, I'm not offering this goat up for its benefit. I'm not sacrificing the goat for its benefit. I'm sacrificing the ghost on behalf of me. So a sacrifice, by definition, relates to someone else. Let's move over to true spiritual reality. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. The first thing you should do is look around and say, on behalf of whom? Sadly, it's become popular in the church today to talk about sacrifice as what I give up. But the actual biblical model of sacrifice is what I give out on behalf of someone else that cost me something. It's not what I give up. It's what I do for you. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. Every command after this in Romans is dealing with another person. What we do for each other. And that's what it means for a church that images God and reflects his glory. DCC, this is what we should do. We ask the question, how do we sacrifice on behalf of others around us? Starting right here, but out to a world desperately in need of love. Now, turn with me to Ephesians. I want to read to you one small Ephesians 3, well-known benediction. Ephesians 3. And keep in mind, this is unique in the world. We are the only ones that believe this. Verse 20. Now to him, that's God, who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory, where? In the church. Isn't that astounding? No other God said, I'm going to express my glory through people. No, because all the, all the other gods, they, they grab the glory. They want to show it themselves. This is unique to us. We have a God that says, I will reflect my glory through you and through my son Jesus. That's the next part of the verse. We image God just by living life. We can't help it. And when we do it the right way as a unified congregation and all those things I talked about in the temple, the world wants to come. They want to see what we're about. They want to belong to that. One more. Look in 1 Peter 2. So I'm slowly moving you from left to right in your Bibles. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Okay, pause. Exodus 19, verses 4 and 5. The Israelites have been out of uh, Egypt now for a couple months, and they're sitting at the base of Mount Sinai, and God's about to meet them. Okay? They haven't met God. They've only heard about him, and they've seen the result of his miracles, but they haven't actually had an exchange with him. So God wants to introduce himself to them, and here's what he says. If you obey my commands fully, I will make you a chosen people, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, my special possession. This doesn't say that. This says you are this. So what happened between if you obey my commands fully, you will do this, and you are this? What happened in between those? If in doubt, say Jesus. Jesus, right? The death on the cross. As a redeemed person, as a community of believers, as a congregation, this is true. You are a chosen people. God chose us. We are a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. A special possession of God. Why? So that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And you've experienced that, haven't you? Individually and as a congregation. Now we're going to look at the second metaphor here. We are a kingdom of priests, royal priests. Let's go back to the Old Testament. What do we know about a priest? You have a priest in the temple, and you come to the priest, and the priest mediates on your behalf to God. The priest doesn't mediate on their own behalf. They're always focused on someone else. Now let's step into true spiritual reality as a spiritual temple. We are all priests, every one of us. And when we say that term, you're a priest, you should look around and say, on behalf of whom? You got it? All these images that they use keep us from looking at ourselves. They force us to look at you and you and you and you and you and you. They force us to look outside. So DCC, you are a kingdom of priests. On behalf of whom? Well, it starts right here, but it results, it moves out really quickly to this community that is so desperately in need of love. All right? Let me tell you why I'm excited about DCC. I've spent the week answering questions, meeting people. Um, I've I've answered a lot of questions the same, a lot of new questions. And I have some observations for you. This is what has excited Nancy and me. One is, you have elders that love the Lord. No doubt in my mind whatsoever. I have been with these men in a variety of uh, situations and answering different types of questions and exploring theology and practicality. What does ministry look like? What does leadership look like? What does the staff look like? What does the church look like? Who am I or Nancy? What are the mistakes we've made? You, You name it, I think they've asked me every question they could think of. And what I've discovered is uh, you have very godly men. Now, let me tell you how unique that is, having been in many organizations and in processes. When I looked on your website, when I first found out, when Rob Schmidt sent me a text a year ago and said, our senior pastor just resigned, uh, would you pray about putting your name in? I went to the website and I read it. And then you guys asked me to come preach, and I preached, filled in a couple times last summer, two or three times, and I was here and I observed it. And I, I got to feel something that was, huh, I like this church. And then they sent me a job description, and the job description was very consistent with everything I had seen. Uh, People want someone who loves the Lord. And then they sent me a questionnaire. When I got the questionnaire, I said, Nancy, come here, look at these questions. The questions tell me a lot about a group, and I learned a ton about the values of this church by the questions I was asked. By the way, that was repeated personally this week by all of your questions. I learned a lot about what's really important to you. What I'm trying to say is that there was integrity through the whole process. And that is not true with uh, other organizations that I've seen, several of them. That's fairly unique in my experience. 
That is very exciting to me. You have elders who are very godly. You have a staff that is fantastic. Um, it's almost intimidating to think that I would work with them, you know, alongside of them. This week I have spent uh, several times, I just plopped into Jew's office and sat down in the chair just to talk and listen. And I've been with the staff. We had dinner. We've had lunch. I've had coffee with some of them. We'll get more of that, Lord willing. It's a fantastic staff. I don't, I didn't, I don't sense a lot of uh, disunity there, or any disunity, actually. Um, they love to be together. They love metaphors. <laughs> when we're having conversations, the metaphors are flying back and forth between Jude and Mark so fast, I'm going, I started calling him Mr. Metaphor. It's amazing. They love to laugh. They love to work. I saw them doing lots of things that I suspect would surprise you at how hard they work. It's an incredible staff. And then there's you. Somebody asked me uh, Thursday night, well, how would you describe our congregation if you had one word? And I said authentic. And that's what I've gotten. Everywhere we've gone all week is authenticity, genuineness. You want to know about things. I know this vote today is very important to you, as it should be. This is a... This is a uh, a point in the life of the church that's critical. Nancy and I have prayed all week that the Spirit would show up and cast His vote alongside of you and it would come in the form of unity. Whatever direction you decide, that you would be unified. That's the most important thing to me. It's a fantastic congregation. I have enjoyed immensely every minute of it except when I was exhausted. <laughs> it's very good. Now let me tell you something else I've observed about your church. Yeah, you have 300 or so that come on Sundays, whatever the number is. I'm not even sure. I've heard different people spout anywhere from 250 to 350, but somewhere in there. But that's not really true. You're a church of 1,000 or 1,500. And it finally dawned on me, watching this week, that you have several groups of people that are involved in this church. You have the core group that live here all the time, right? You're here all the time. They have a certain set of needs and a certain strategies required to, to love you. And then you have this secondary group that are here several months a year. And they seem, they seem to, as best I can tell, swap. Some like it here in the winter, some like it here in the summer. I can't understand they don't, why they don't like it both times. But, right? So you have these groups that exchange with each other, and probably some of them are listening to this. And uh, uh, thank you for listening if you are. And so there's a whole level, another level of people that attend here. And then you have all the vacationers that come and go from week to week, depending on the time of the year. When I preached at the amphitheater, I saw 600 people. It was like, oh, my there's another whole group of people that we only may have in one week, maybe two weeks. A whole different strategy is required to love those people well. That's a fantastic church. I know peers all around the nation that would kill for a challenge like this. It's a wonderful church. I'm saying all that to bless you. That's what I desire is that you be blessed. Now, I've been accused of being a theological optimist, and you're seeing it coming out. Um, the good guys always win in the Bible. God and us. So, when you live life, just remember, at your very worst, you still image God more clearly than anything in creation. You can't help it. Let me pray for us. Father, I, uh, Nancy and I are so very grateful to have spent the week here. We have so much enjoyed meeting these people, uh, loving them, living with them, being loved by them, being asked hard questions, being asked fun questions, being asked questions that make us cry, make us laugh.
We have learned so much about this congregation. Thank you for that. Father, I pray for them. I know that they have a very important meeting coming up. I pray that you would allow them to express themselves honestly and openly. And Lord, uh, as we've prayed all week, that your spirit would show up to uh, cast the vote alongside of them and his vote would result in unity. Protect this congregation. It is a priceless congregation. Thank you for the honor of standing here in front of them and sharing your word with them. Lord, we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, because we do truly believe in him. Amen.